0: Welcome to Diving Board, a show about artists, the art they create, and the wide range of social and cultural ideas they explore. I'm Bill Valerio, and I run the Woodmere Art Museum, where we tell the stories of Philadelphia's art and artists. On this episode, we're diving into the work of the artist Larry Day who was a thoughtful, philosophically oriented painter, draftsman, and printmaker who lived from 1921 through 1998 and spent most of his life in Philadelphia. Day made a mark on the history of American art and contributed to the broad conversations of the late 1950s and early 1960s that were concerned with an art that focused on everyday subjects and on new interpretations of figurative realism. As much as he was dedicated to his own art making, he was in equal measure a teacher, and in Philadelphia, he became known as the Dean of Philadelphia Painters. Woodmere is excited to be presenting Body Language, The Art of Larry Day. This is a three-part exhibition that is the largest, most ambitious show of Larry Day's work to date, and it celebrates the centennial of his birth. Woodmere is organizing the show together with the University of the Arts and Arcadia University, and parts of the show take place at each of the three venues. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Ruth Fine and David Bindman. Without them, we could never have pulled this exhibition together. Ruth is herself an artist who was married to Larry Day. She also enjoyed an extraordinary career as a curator at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. The distinguished art historian David Beinman took on the role as guest curator of our exhibition. David has also been a teacher at some of the most prestigious colleges and universities, and he was also a longtime friend to Larry Day. Between Ruth and David, there has been a personal dimension to the decisions that have driven the organization of the show. But before we get to Ruth and David, just a few quick notes about the exhibition. It features nearly 150 works of art spanning the trajectory of Day's career. And we've divided works into three distinct parts that speak to his career as an artist. At the University of the Arts, where Day taught and was a leader of the painting department, the focus is Nature Abstracted, and it includes the abstract paintings of the 1950s, through which Day built his career in Philadelphia and New York. Here at Woodmere, we're featuring Silent Conversations, which tells the story of Day's journey over the next decades into the figurative arts and the multi-figure tableaus for which he is most well-known. And at Arcadia University, Absent Present showcases Day's cityscape paintings that he made in parallel to the figurative work. Now we're going to hear from Ruth Fine. Ruth and Larry married in 1983, but she first met him when she was a student in art school. Ruth is a painter and printmaker and previously taught at the Philadelphia College of Art, which is now the University of the Arts. She also taught at Beaver College, which is now Arcadia University. After teaching, she became a curator and worked at the National Gallery of Art for 40 years as the institution's curator of special projects in modern art. She has written extensively on modern prints and drawings and on the work of African-American artists and is an independent curator. Ruth is going to share with us what Larry was like, how he worked as an artist, and what was important to him as he built a life which was full rich with friendships and intertwined with the arts.
1: I met Larry because I was in my sophomore sculpture class, the teacher of which was Natalie Charco, now Natalie Charco-Hollander. And she looked at me one day and she said, you are never going to be a sculptor, but I think you're going to be a good painter and I want you to meet the best painter in the school. And she marched me up to Larry's studio and we met each other. And I then took one class with him as a junior, a painting class. And he was really a legendary character in the school. Everybody, well, not everybody, but those people who admired him, admired him hugely. And once I met him, being in his class made me a little nervous. I had already been talking to him about my work, and I liked talking to him about my work, but I didn't like being in class with him. I felt he, I mean, it wasn't him, it was me. And so I only took one semester, but I always took my work with him to talk about it. And the most amazing thing, which others have said, is that when you talk to Larry about your work, you leave having a very good sense of What you need to be thinking about, what you need to be looking at, what you need to be reading, and what you want to think about in relation to your work. But you would never have any idea what he thought about your work because he was never judgmental in the way that he would say, oh, it's good or it's bad. He was never specific in saying, well, if you add a little red here, it'll be better. If you add a little blue there, it'll be better. He would always be someone that would teach you how to think. And for me, that was one of his most extraordinary qualities. I went on to marry somebody else, another painter, a younger painter. And Larry became our best friend, just as he was the best friend to other younger couples. Larry was the bachelor. Larry had a huge curiosity, and his way of working was, in a sense, to prepare for working. He would read whatever poetry he thought related to an idea he had. He would read About other painters who had, in previous times, embraced ideas that he was thinking about. He would listen to the music that he thought had an association with his work. And for him, that could be anything from medieval music through all of classical music through show tunes through popular music and jazz. He was very, very, very interested in jazz as it developed and had a great library of jazz music. Larry came from a working class background. I doubt that there were many books or records in his home. He talks about reading the two-volume biography of Keats and how he was the only person who took the second volume out of the library. But he was always, up until he went to Tyler, I would say he was isolated in his intellectual world. When he was in the army, he was in the Pacific campaign, and he was the librarian at Iwo Jima, and he would write letters home for the other soldiers because he knew how to express their thoughts in a way that made them comfortable. I think he only knew one way, in a sense, which was to discover who he was, make that work in a world that was not necessarily aligned with how he was. When he played games, he was the one who shouted the loudest. I think he did certain things to... I wouldn't say be normal, but I would say, you know, playing games was about shouting and cheering, just as reading was about being alone in a quiet space and going from word to word. He always treated everyone equally and with respect. And I think that was part of his extraordinary quality as a teacher, that he dealt with his students in exactly the same way as he would deal with his friends. They were young professional painters as opposed to old professional painters. And I think that's very much what it was about. I think he was finding out how to make his way through the world. And he shared his efforts and his discoveries with anybody he came into contact with. And it was a unique quality. I think Larry believed the human imagination was of absolute critical importance in every field. He was interested in black holes, for example. I don't think he knew very much about black holes, but he would read about black holes, certainly in terms of the humanities His interest was immense, but there was an elegance. He was an inclusive person. I, in all the years I knew Larry, heard him only once say he didn't like someone. And this was after a dinner party, and he found the person arrogant. I never, ever heard him say he didn't like anybody else. It just wasn't on his radar. But it wasn't about Liking or disliking or approving or not approving. It was about finding common ground. And he was always looking for common ground with everybody, any situation he was in. It was very important to Larry that the work, both his writing and his painting and drawing, not be graspable in one fast fell swoop. I think he so deeply believed in the layered nature of experience and in discovering things as you go along, that he felt the experience of art would be richest if you discovered as you went along. And so while you will see something in a painting, if you look quickly, or a drawing if you look quickly, You will see much more and be able to connect it to your own experience if you take the time to look. And he insists on that. He insists on it in the sense that you're not going to get the work if you don't take the time to look. I mean, Larry was never a realist painter. He is locked into that category, but it was never about realism. It was about metaphor and about parallels. I think of him in terms of parallels, parallel experience, that multiple things are happening in line with each other simultaneously. He was as engaged by the preparation of whatever he was going to do as he was in the activity as he was doing it And he also deeply believed that the experience of a work of art was completed by the viewer. And so after he was done with it, it was still functioning as a motivator of change. Because if two different people looked at it and two different people saw totally different things, that was great. I think Larry makes the richest objects with the most work with the least material. His paintings, I'm talking starting in the 60s, but even the abstract works, they're not thickly painted. I think some of that may have grown from him being poor and not being able to afford a lot of materials. But I think it also came from his love of tapestry and his love of frescoes and the richness of those surfaces that he was translating into paint. Generally, his paintings are thin, but they are worked and reworked and reworked. And the richness of the surface for the amount of material is extraordinary. He used a range of brushes. He used good quality materials. Larry started teaching in the early 50s, so from that point on, he could afford what he needed. He never made a lot of money teaching, but neither did anybody else. But he sold his paintings steadily during his lifetime. He showed with several galleries. I mean, he showed with Gallery 1015 and with Gross McLeaf and with Dubin Gallery earlier than that and had shows in New York. And many of his paintings went into banks that are now closed. We haven't been able to find everything, but we have found a lot. But he used good materials. He used high-quality papers. He used high-quality paints, high-quality watercolors, and a range of colors. You know, I mean, he didn't have a limited palette. He had an extensive palette. He always had pencil and pencil sharpener and something to draw on with him. I mean, he would draw on anything, but he usually had a drawing pad with him or paper with him. Hundreds of small drawings. And there's an overview of the drawings at Woodbeer that shows the range of his subjects and methods. What's interesting is there are many, many drawings related to specific figure paintings There are very few drawings related to specific architecture paintings. I think that's because the architecture paintings tend to be rooted in one site, whereas the figure paintings, the arrangement of the figures itself, has so many variant possibilities. And he wanted to try them all out. And I don't think it was ever well, this is the right one, so this is the one I'm going to use. This is the one, I'm going to stay with this. At a certain point, it felt right, and he stayed with it. Do I think he thought it was the only possibility? I don't think he thought it was the only possibility. He also absolutely did drawings after the paintings were finished. I mean, people always think that drawings related to paintings were done before them, but they are not done before them necessarily. They're done during and after. And, I mean, that's not true for Larry, it's true for many artists. Matisse said someplace that the only way to be original is to have sources that are distant in time or distant in place, that the generation immediately before you is part of you and you don't have to think about them, that they're there. And so if you want to be original, you go away in time or place. I mean in a way that's what Larry did but it's what people are doing today. It's fascinating and also the return to the interest in the figure and certain surreal organizations of figuration, of compositions so I would think that people could be very interested in Larry's work today for that reason. He never was a totally abstract painter. But all of the paintings have a visual underlayer, a philosophical underlayer of abstraction. So I don't think of Larry as ever giving up abstraction, but as adding to abstraction. I don't think he shifted. I think he layered. And for the rest of his life, that was important to him to have that kind of layering. And there are many drawings, you know, little drawings that are just about laying out the abstract composition. You know, nothing's in it but directional lines. I mean, issues of direction always mattered. The Golden Mean was important to him. Uh, Fibonacci series. I mean, all of the kinds of mathematical systemic things that entered into artistic practice are in there. They're just not obvious. And you don't have to know that they're in there to get something from the work, but knowing that they're in there doesn't hurt. (laughs) I think another way in which Larry impacts or parallels the interests of artists today can be seen in the many paintings and drawings of himself in the studio. So it's the act of being an artist and how does an artist fit into society would have been part of what was on his mind. The immense number of self-portraits, even more than I realized, again, looking closely at many of the late drawings, how many have the self-portrait in it? I mean, we have the series Tempi del Giorno, which is in the Philadelphia Museum's collection. That essentially is the times of day, and it's day by day is the name of the portrait they have at the Philadelphia Museum. I mean, he's in every one of the Tempi del Giorno drawings. So one could say maybe that was the forceful start of this engagement, I think, and the three studio paintings, the changes that will be in the exhibition, and Limit, which is reproduced in the catalog, and then the third is at Holland's University. The many, many, many self-portraits with his friends, but I mean, what's interesting is he's not physically in the poker painting he's not physically in the conversation which is in front of his house his subjects are places he was I mean he was teaching at Penn and we have two paintings that reference Penn many reference his Myrtle Avenue house but again and again there's his face and many I don't have I mean he did a wonderful drawing of himself with the great printer Ken Tyler. And when Larry died, I gave it to Ken Tyler. So I've given many things to the people who I thought most logically should have them. But they were always the people he was with, plus him. You know, how do I fit into this place? And just zany combinations of places in these late drawings, but many of them will have his head somewhere in there. And what's interesting is it's very hard to find his signature. Early on, his signature was large. He didn't sign everything. Many things are signed when they went out, but many of the late drawings are signed, and it's a tiny little day that you really have to look for to find So the insertion of the face and the hiding of the name. Does that mean something? I think it's pretty interesting that you really have to look to find the signature. It's all about discovery for him. Reading was about discovery. Listening to music was about discovery. I mean, he conducted music. He had a conductor's baton and lots of scores. Music was not a background thing for him. I mean, if Larry was going to listen to a symphony, he was going to sit down and listen to the symphony, and he maybe was going to conduct the symphony, and he was going to think about the structure of the symphony in relation to the structure of the painting he was thinking about. I don't think of him as doing anything casually. He didn't play games casually. He didn't listen to music casually. He had strong feelings. I mean, he felt if you went out to dinner, you wore a long-sleeved shirt under your jacket. He was very involved with decorum and appropriateness and proper. I mean, one of the biggest things that I think was hugely important is that he took things as far as they needed to go in order to be comprehensible to him, and he hoped to others. He was never an illustrator. He was never trying to illustrate. He wasn't trying to make a metaphor, he was making a metaphor. And he had immense respect for the everyday. He felt that the everyday was as dramatic and important as anything else. So that, you know, it's genre really, whatever, it's subject. He felt the ordinary was extraordinary. I suppose that would be, if I had to sum him up in a phrase, that might be what it would be. The ordinary was extraordinary for him.
0: And now we're going to turn to David Bindman, a longtime friend of Larry Day and Ruth Fine. David is Emeritus Professor of the History of Art at University College in London and fellow of the Hutchins Center at Harvard University. He has curated exhibitions on William Blake, William Hogarth, and the French Revolution. His recent work has mainly been on ideas of race and art, and he is editor along with Henry Louis Gates Jr. of the series, The Image of the Black in Western Art. As you'll hear, David will talk about how Larry Day was a reflective and philosophical artist, who was literary at heart. Day was voraciously curious about the history of art, history, music, and cultural thinking in a broad sense and he brought all of this to bear on his practice of making art.
2: He was a very reticent person and he didn't talk about his work you know, his deeper thoughts in- about that sort of thing. But he did talk a lot about almost everything else. And he was a you know highly cultivated person with extraordinarily well-read and had an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of art. And we mainly talked about those sort of things. But I would say that he was always, I suppose I wouldn't say actually closed up when it came to a question of his art, but he didn't push that forward at all he would talk very much about other things. He was extremely well read, and not just in the obvious classics. He read Thomas Mann and German classics and so on. He not only read people like Pound and Eliot, he also read critiques of them as well. And if you look at his notebooks, he often pulls out extracts, not only from T. S. Eliot and people, but from people writing about T. S. Eliot. I think in some ways literature is almost equal in his mind to his interest as a painter. And I think he could have been a considerable poet or thinker, really, philosophical thinker, if he hadn't been a painter. And his taste in art was really interesting because it was completely unexpected. Uh well, not entirely. Shall we say there were some common things? I mean, we certainly bonded over the uh, the great Bellini-Titian in the uh, the Feast of the Gods in the National Gallery, and I think that was, you know, one of the most important paintings for him. But then, you know, he would go to the, the kind of byways of the gallery, and he tried to persuade me to fall for a painting by Arthur Davis, I think it was. Anyway, something I have no particular liking for, really, of a, a gentleman standing in a landscape, rather primitive sort of provincial style. You know, he decided that there was something really great there. And he also had a slightly weird taste in prints as well. Again, he would, you know, sometimes pick surprising artists to talk about. And yet he obviously had a very strong sense of the mainstream. And one of the things I argued in my essay that it's really that great Cezanne in Philadelphia, the card players, that sort of looms over an awful lot of his art. And if you put that together with the Bellini Titian, Feast of the Gods, you've got a very large sense of the dynamic in his work, really, between his concern with sociability and also monumentality and philosophical depth as well. In a way, he he was like the very much a teacher, I think, but not the kind of teacher who does flashy lectures and gets people enthusiastic, but he tended to throw things back at you so that you were, in a sense, a partner in the discussion. I mean he was very sort of unoppressive in his conversation and he was never pompous or assertive in that sense. I think at first he's very much part of the abstract expressionists, and he was quite close to uh, Franz Kline, and he knew de Kooning as well. And then, quite dramatically, he gives that up and moves back towards the old masters. And that's really one of the most interesting things about him because it's a move that a lot of artists made, not only in the United States, but also in the UK, and I suspect in others. There's a certain moment when abstract expressionism seems to just sort of die in a funny way. And I would date it round about 67, 68, when we all felt... You know, this is not working. This is past. So much of the focus of his art is actually on himself, that he does make an appearance in a remarkable number of works. But he he doesn't do it in a sort of heroic way at all. It's almost a kind of self-deprecatory manner, almost satirising himself as the kind of guy you who know, sort of sits on the margins and observes. And he puts himself in all these different situations. And that was something that I hadn't quite taken on board how much of his work is self-referential and about himself, but not in a an egotistical way at all. I think rather the contrary. He almost is the kind of ordinary man, I think, perhaps a little bit like sort of Leopold Bloom in Ulysses he's the sort of man who sets things off in his trail, but is a kind of still centre, not a an active presence, which of course is not of course what he really was at all, and I think also the role of sociability is very obvious in it that it's so much of his art is about sort of ideas of community, I think, and even in the later drawings, those. Really quite mysterious works, you've still got the sense of communities interacting as well. I suppose the very sort of personal approach to the art of the past, he absolutely doesn't take an obvious route at all. He often pick on some quite, you know, obscure things. For instance, 18th century French sculptures come in. And his attitude to Italy is really interesting, too, that I haven't quite taken that on board. But of course, he was, in fact, uh, Lorenzo del Giorno, and he changed his name to Larry Day. And there is that sort of curious sense of Italy, both past and present. And he obviously is, you know, in love with the old master painters. But there's also an interesting sense of contemporary Italy, of the sort of glamour of Italian film stars, and also you occasionally get The Odd Gangster coming in as well, one or two paintings, quite surprisingly, that seem to be about Italian gangster culture, which is not at all what one would expect. And I suppose the thing that comes out is how much more complicated the pictures are than they appear at first. The relationships are complex and not at all readable first and that sense of interaction of people how mysterious it is in a way is, is very strong I think as he was very aware you know painting is a form of artifice and I think it's really also an expression of wit as well you know because he's creating these things and he's in some ways sending up the idea of the artist as creator and questioning it, the exceptional claims that artists have made or have made on their behalves. So he's very much in dialogue, I suppose, with different ways of thinking about the artist. And I think that he was a man of considerable wit as well. And I think that this wit does come out often, you know, quite submerged, really. They aren't the sort of paintings that make you laugh aloud or anything like that, but they do in a way, have a certain built-in sense of satire, I think. But very gentle and very elusive. But
0: it's, I think, there, yes. The first painting that I came to know by Larry Day is a large work called Poker Game. When I arrived at Woodmere in 2010 as the museum's new director, the painting captivated me on first sight. I knew... This was an artist I wanted to know more about. And in many ways, the journey to the current exhibition started there and then. And David Bindman considers the poker game to be as powerful and interesting as I do. It
2: seems to have everything of him in it. I mean, one of the things that's clearly very important to him is his relationship to earlier painting. And that's got so much of it in there. You've got, as I mentioned before, the a dialogue with Cézanne. But it also has the sort of sociability is very strong there, too, because it's a group of card players that had a history even before he came into them and still, I think, went on until very recently. And it was very much a sort of members only, but also continually renewing itself over the years. And that kind of, in a way, the actual, you know, the game itself was the probably the least important part of it, but on the other hand, something that they did hold on to all that time. And, you know, we know all about every single member of the group. So there is that sense of friendship, sociability, and, of course, also the monumentality and the structural seriousness of the painting and so on. You know, there are also sort of mysteries about it because the drawings, he's there all the time. And then, when the painting is finally done, he's simply represented by an empty chair. So, there's things going on there that I don't quite understand, but they seem very characteristic of his approach. Another, I think, very important artist from Larry, and that's Pierre de la Francesca. You know, that sense of the monumental figuration of figures that, you know, aren't shown as very solid sculptural. Classical. I mean, he's very much a classicist. And the tension between that, the sort of, if you like, the weight of history on art and then contemporary life as people live it, is something that he doesn't resolve and can't resolve and shouldn't resolve, really, because that's what drives the paintings on, I think. I suppose what it is, in a way, is slow art. It's not something that reaches out and grabs you and it doesn't rely on one single effect it's slow and it's also contemplative but it's the sort of art that will never be popular but will always have some adherence I think people who get a lot out of it and, and continue to do so it's a more elevated idea of art than you get from a lot of quarters put it that way
0: And on that final note from David, I hope you'll come spend time with us at Woodmere and get to know the work of Larry Day. Body Language, The Art of Larry Day, is on view at Woodmere through January 23rd, at Arcadia Exhibitions through November 21st, and at the Rosenwald Wolf Galleries of University of the Arts through December 3rd. For more information about visiting, head online to woodmereartmuseum.org where you can also find out about lectures, gallery talks, art classes, and music events taking place in conjunction with this and with other exhibitions. And please, be sure to stay in touch with us on social media at Woodmere Art. Diving Board is produced by Stephanie Marutis of Cuvenda Media and mixed by Brad Linder. I'm Bill Valerio. Thanks for joining us.